Let Them Lead is a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. Your host is John Bacon, author of the book, Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, which led to this podcast. On Let Them Lead, John talks to remarkable leaders from every field imaginable. Automotive, computers, food service, media, education, and athletics, just to name a few. And they share their hard-won wisdom, amazing stories, and a few laughs. You'll also learn a few things you can use tomorrow, and things you can think about the rest of your life. John always finishes with three takeaways and a discussion of their favorite teacher. In the words of John's fifth grade teacher, Mr. Puddock, it's fast, it's fun, and we get it done. So please join us for an entertaining and inspiring discussion. You'll be glad you did. You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes. And by all means, spread the word. That's how the word gets spread. And now here's our latest episode of Let Them Lead, presented by your host, John U. Bacon. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon, the host of the podcast and the author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. And as you know, I'm not making that up. Today we've got another special guest, Casey Cowell, and I'll explain his background to you shortly, as well as his great successes. You might not have heard of him, but I guarantee you, you have heard of his company, U.S. Robotics, and you have used his modems on your way up with the computer world. So as the internet came big, so did U.S. Robotics, and we'll tell that story as well. But what's really cool to me is how it happened and what he's done since. So we'll get into all of that right now. Casey, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I appreciate that. Casey grew up in Southeast Michigan playing a little hockey on a seriously good team with Hall of Fame coaches. Please tell us about that experience and what you learned about leadership and about yourself in the process. I grew up in Northwest Detroit. My dad was a steam fitter, basically a plumber. So real working class neighborhood. And uh, like many of the homes in our neighborhood, we had an ice rink in the uh, backyard and uh, my cousin lived with us. He was seven years older and he got me uh, started. And I think with him kind of handling the puck, bringing it at me, for whatever reason, I learned to skate backwards really well. And when I got to be squirt's age, I went out for tryouts, and I could skate backwards better than anybody else. So they said, hey, why don't you be the goalie? And so I ended up as the goalie for my entire career. And uh, the first year I played, just walking out there through tryouts, it turns out that I uh, I ended up on a team with uh, Mark and Marty Howe, Gordy Howe's sons, and I played with them for many years. And uh, through that experience, I got to spend a lot of time, family trips at their home, etc., around Gordy. And it's not often that somebody gets to be that close to their idol. And he was the idol of everyone in Detroit. But even more remarkable is so many times I think when you're around your idol, turns out they're not quite what you think they are. Gordy was exactly what we thought he was. He was this veneer of sheer quietness, understatedness, but you knew underneath it was pure horsepower and low unto you if you went into the corners with Gordy Howell. <laughs> and one of the things about him, too, he had a huge effect on me. One thing I remember to this day is uh, we would go down and work our way into Olympia Stadium somehow or other to, as kids to see the Red Wings play. We'd hang out around the locker room after the game. And never once did I see Gordy leave the hallways 
before he had signed every autograph request. Now, that's a business today, and people can't really do that. But it was just his way of respecting the fandom that supported him and supported hockey. He knew what he was to uh, kids, and to be that close to that horsepower had a huge effect, just the way he carried himself. Big deal for me. But we played on uh, the first year we played with squirts, and there weren't that many conclaves of hockey around the U.S., but they were all around, and uh, we won the national championship. <laughs> and, and you're the goalie of the national championship team. That's a bit of pressure, isn't it, for a kid? It is, but the thing that's great about hockey, unlike, say, golf, where the little white ball is just sitting on the tee, is in hockey, uh, you're out there with uh, five teammates on the ice, and everybody's playing as hard as they can and reinforcing each other. And the thing that I learned through all my nine years or so of playing organized amateur hockey was, in Bo Schembechler's words, you know, team, team, team. We'll take a, I'll take a, a team of B players up against a group of individuals calling themselves a team of A-plus <laughs> players any day because team wins. And that just got, it got drummed into us through the ex- experience of competing as a team. It just happens. It affected my entire life. So uh, to this day. So the team philosophy, as well as also the confidence you gain from that experience, that you can do hard things. You can do absolutely if you put your mind to it. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in my life, eventually figured this out, the value of being on a mission. And if we can talk about this just for a second, because it's important. By all means. The thing about a mission is that it's bigger than you are. It transcends your own life. And you never really necessarily achieve a mission. You achieve things that are in concert with or head in the direction of the mission. There's a, a, a great book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. And it's a classic. It's, it's a classic. It's great for anyone and everyone, especially young people, to read. But Frankl, as a young man, uh, grew up inside uh, Nazi concentration camps, and he survived. And he saw many, many people perish. And he had survivor's guilt, basically. And, you know, the, the issue for him really was, why did he survive when all these other people didn't? And to explore that, he became a psychoanalyst and a philosopher, and he spent much of his time working with survivors to try to, you know, help them deal with this, this issue. And it's fun to try to, to summarize books in a sentence a lot of times. And Nietzsche, the German philosopher, great sure. German philosopher, really kind of summed it up. He said, he who has a reason why can put up with almost any how. Meaning that if you're on the path to do something that's in the future and down the road and you can aim for, it gives your life meaning and it gives your life purpose and it enables you to constantly keep going no matter what you encounter in the near term. So, you know, to jump ahead a little bit, when I was in college, you know, we ended up starting an electronics company with, I did with three friends, two friends primarily, three of us mainly, with literally $200 cash. And uh, the funny thing was that at the University of Chicago, they had no uh, engineering school and they did not have a computer science department. Really? In, in 75, they didn't have a computer science department. That engineering school, I know, but computer science surprises me. They had a big computer system that ran billing for the hospital. And, you know, physicists worked on it, but they didn't have a, a degree. You could take one introductory class or two, and that was it. And so the I met my partner, main partner, by uh, petitioning the dean of students to be able to take a successive class, successor class, 
for which I had to go to the business school and the night school because that's, there were no, no other classes. And that's where we met. We were the only two college kids in the class. And uh, <laughs> so, right. So he and I and some of our friends had concluded that through artificial intelligence and technology advancement, man would eventually achieve immortality. And we, I know this sounds far-fetched, but it's a mission. And we concluded that, you know, we were likely to just miss the window, just miss the cut. So our objective was to start a company, and we thought it should be in the computer world because that was the next big thing, we thought. And the objective was to make hundreds of billions of dollars of profit and use that to fund artificial intelligence research to try to move the window in a little bit so that we would make the cut on immortality. <laughs> Not the first guy to try that one. <laughs> well, it, it checked all the boxes for a mission, you know, bigger than transcended our own life, extended our own life, literally. So bizarrely and unfortunately, both of my partners passed away uh, mm. in the midst of going down this path, but we kept the mission alive. We managed to get products out and we built a tremendous team. We just kept adding good people. And I think one of the things about that is uh, Peter Drucker, mm -hmm. business uh, commentator, has a, maybe his most famous quote, which is, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think, you know, as the leader, as you build up a team, and we built up a great big team, 5,500 people eventually. And as the leader, the thing is, is that you define the culture, or at least you, you recognize it, and you are the keeper of the culture. And everybody in your team, big or small, is looking for you to protect them and protect the culture. And where there's breakdowns in it or people who don't quite fit, you've got to get them out of there or change their point of view. But keeping the culture pure and focused is your number one goal. And it's what really defines your purpose as, as the leader of the organization. So um, we just kept adding people and built a tremendous team. And as an example, you know, and we can get into this a little bit, it wasn't unusual as we got bigger, we had say a thousand employees for me to walk down the hallways of, it could be R&D, it could be manufacturing, it could be materials, what have you. For me to walk by as I passed, it wouldn't be unusual to hear the call out, which was our purpose, kick ass and sell modems. And everybody knew it. And we just, we lived it uh, to the nth degree and it paid off. It was a tremendous, tremendous time. I love that. And, and they, they were just, I mean, it was so inculcated in your culture and your people that oh, yeah. anybody could yell this to anybody at almost any time. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of funny. Our first ad, we were so hell-bent on this mission, the original one, back to the early, early days. You know, we had, ran our first ad. It was a, a six-page ad on uh, February 1977 issue of Byte Magazine introducing the M5 modem. And uh, all we had was a P.O. box, P.O. box 5502 in Chicago. And uh, the lower left corner of the ad was the uh, start of our global movement. It was capital letters A-I-O-D. We were certain that everyone would just get this. was uh, artificial intelligence or die. And, uh, <laughs> off we went. and so... We used to joke at the time, you know, you'd see, uh, or in later years, you'd probably read the uh, the industry press, Computer World, Electronic News, and see those blurbs about what's happening uh, and see something like, uh, you know, IBM opens new 200,000 square foot facility in research, Triangle Park, North Carolina. Digital Equipment Corporation opens new 100,000 square foot facility in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
U.S. Robotics opens new P.O. box in downtown Chicago. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and yet, who won that battle? That's the funny thing. Well, we did. Yep. Yeah, we became the world's largest maker of modems, anything that connected computers to the uh, public switch telephone network. And uh, we did it on both ends of the call. So if you used a modem in your home or at your office, more than 50% of those were our products. If you used them in a portable computer, that was ours. If you bought a modem that was included inside your computer or under a different brand like Apple, IBM, etc., that was probably ours. And if you called into an online service like America Online, CompuServe, Prodigy, IBM Global Networks, etc., you were most likely calling into massive computer systems that we built that could handle, you know, hundreds of thousands of calls simultaneously. I love this. Yeah, so it worked out. And again, you know, I can't emphasize enough the impact of being on a team and reinforce recognizing the power of working as a team on a mission. It's unstoppable. So it was unstoppable. I'm, ri- I'm writing that one down, Casey. By the way, I've already got three pages of notes. I usually have around two at the end of most interviews. So you're <laughs> filling it up very quickly. We got a lot to unpack here. Great stuff. We can go. I could go back to yeah. Gordy Howe. And by the way, a few non-hockey fans out there, Gordy Howe, his buddy's dad, is known as Mr. Hockey, arguably the greatest player of all time. Gretzky, of course, probably is, but in terms of the greatest all-around player. Everybody, including Phil Esposito, I interviewed recently. They all say Gordie Howe, Gretzky does too, for that matter. Says that Gordie Howe was the all-time, he was tough, he was talented, he was a leading scorer, of course. And the Gordie Howe hat-trick was a goal and assist and elbow to your nose. Or a fight. It was a fight. Yeah, exactly. You can substitute that as well. But he's also famous (laughs) for those uh, pointed elbows, which left a lot of guys in his path, so in his wake. So He would come out and skate with us in practice from time to time and... uh, I've got all the goalie stuff on, and we're doing some skating drills, skating around like mad. And I'm skate racing from one end of the rink to the other. And uh, he's on the ice, probably 10 years old. And anyway, I'm huffing and puffing, skating along. And all of a sudden, I'm up in the air like Superman. And Gordon skated <laughs> up and picked me up by the back of my pants and jersey with one hand and skated down the ice with the puck on his stick, flipped it in the net, and then set me down and said, uh, beat you on that one. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he was, he, he was just had this quiet, overpowering way. And it, I'll tell you something that's for managers, I think something I learned was we were constantly skating in the business world into new ice, new terrain where we had no experience. And one of the things that's great to keep in mind as you chug along is to look for role models because mm. it can really help you when you're in unfamiliar terrain to think back, how would so-and-so handle this? And many times I've looked back at difficult situations and just said, how would Gordy handle this? And I knew instantly how he would do it and it would help guide me because he'd be tough as nails, sit back quietly and stake out his turf and command respect. And then people listen. But you can do it a lot of ways. It's just great to look for all the input you can get. And the other thing we did, John, is that we really emphasize positive attitude. So it was teamwork and positive attitude. In the early days, we used to sell other people's products as well because we couldn't make enough selling modems. So we sold computer terminals and printers, etc. We had an opportunity to sell an NEC Spinwriter printer, which was a high-quality printer that weighed 55 pounds with a modem. So it could be connected <laughs> to the telephone. 55 network. pounds. 55 pounds, right. So we have this joint call with another company 
and it was Henry, I can't remember his last name, but he was an older guy and a terrific salesman. I was terrible. And so I drive out in my beat-up Volkswagen to the uh, DuPage County Library System and uh, carry a block and a half this 55-pound printer in and modem and set it down. And we have a meeting, the first time I've met Henry, and we have a meeting. It's with four elderly ladies who are making decisions for the DuPage County Library System. And I launch into my stuff, and it's all about the technology. Modems work this way, and the printer works that way, and go on, so on and so forth. And quietly, Henry takes over the meeting, and he shifts it to these ladies and what they're about and how long have they been there and what do they like about the county library system, et cetera. And eventually we got the order. And so we get out of there and we get out to the sidewalk. I'm carrying my printer. He stops me and he looks at me and he says, Sonny, if you can't be good, be enthusiastic. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great lesson because oftentimes, usually how you say it and how you relate to who you're communicating with is at least as important as what you say. And especially when it's a face-to-face meeting like that, that's the whole package. As they say, you can't necessarily win it in the first inning, mm-hmm. but you can lose it in the first <laughs> inning. And, and so, uh, so we always really focused on being positive and making that part of our culture. And it works. You know, it works. People, people want to be on a team with a leader. And, and given the chance to win, they want to do it. They'll do anything to do that. I like that a lot, of course. You've already read my book, and God bless you, Casey. Before it was cool, in August, before it even came out, he ordered 100 for his people, and they've uh, since gobbled it up, and I appreciate that. But high school hockey and U.S. robotics got a lot of similarities here. You pick for character first, and I love how you emphasize that. People want to work for a leader, but they also want to have a chance to lead as well. So a smart leader listens to those people. I've written down now four pages of notes here. It's fantastic. As far as picking your team goes, I mean, this is the early days of, I mean, you're at the cutting edge of modems back then. No one knew what that term even meant. Probably in the 70s, most people didn't. I didn't, certainly. Why would I have a modem in 78, you know, 80, whatever? But but anyway, so we get to those things. They all went ping in the old days and all that. Oh, yeah. How did you build your staff? Now, you got computer hotshots. You've got people with fancy degrees, but clearly the team is very important to you. Positive attitude is very important to you. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. So with all that in mind, how did you put your team together? We had to search for some people, but we were an enthusiastic team and we attracted people, which was great. The thing that we ended up focusing on, I think probably the number one attribute eventually we settled on was self-confidence. Because when you have self-confident people, they're comfortable with themselves Mm-hmm. And they work well with other people. And they're not trying to... A lot of weak people, they're threatened by the success of others. And they'll even... It's hard to identify sometimes, but they'll even undercut their coworkers and their teammates because they're threatened by you being successful. And self-confident people don't do that. They're not threatened by that. And so you can build great teams out of self-confident people. And once you do that and you have them working as a team... The thing that you can do with mission is you're really telling them where to go and you can set specific objectives. But once you've got them on that path, you've got to keep steering. What you really have to do is define for them what they can't do. But other than that, you're trying to turn them loose and keep an eye on them. But you're working for them. They're not working for you. And your job is to protect them, create the environment, give them leadership and direction, and then let them have it. When in doubt, act. 
-hmm. If you make a mistake, we'll clean it up. Very few mistakes are fatal. Many, many things get done when you take a chance rather than sit back and analyze it to death. Well, especially when your data, I mean, the people who ponder, I think, too often, which is usually the case, that's the rule, not the exception that I've seen in the corporate world and elsewhere, you ponder, you ponder, you ponder, trying for this perfect solution, trying to hit the bullseye in the first shot. You usually miss the bullseye anyway. So after all that pondering, you're three months in and you still missed. Better to miss in two weeks and say, okay, here's why we missed. Let's figure it out, recalibrate. And you've got a much better shot. I mean, how many, how many bullets do you have? Use them all. <laughs> so, well, yep, yep. You know, there's another great book that speaks to another big aspect of this, which is vision and thinking forward. It was written by Thomas Kuhn, I think in the 60s, and it's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And in that book, he figures out or identifies what he believes is how many of our great discoveries happened in the science world. And so the question is, how was it in 1905 that Albert Einstein, working as a patent clerk, not even at an academic institution, published four papers that transformed our view of reality in the physical world? And why did this not come out of some physics research institution someplace? How was it that an independent managed to do this? And to sum up his book in one sentence, it's this. You can't incrementalize your way to a paradigm shift. Hmm. So for stated differently, what's good to do is to put a blank sheet of paper on the board, erase the whiteboard, and draw out as openly as you can and creatively as you can what you might like to be in the future and where are your organizations going to end up in the future and then work backwards. Because otherwise, all too often, if we're at point A and we're trying to see where we're going to go next, point B, which is the target or the goal or the objective, is completely constrained by where we are at point A. Hmm. And it's totally limiting in how we perceive our opportunity space out there. And if you clear the decks and open up more creative thinking, it can really transform your business. And it gets you to think openly. Now, I can give you an interesting example of this, which is that in 1982, we had figured out how to build a modem by reading how to do it articles in Byte magazine. <laughs> there was a guy named Don Lancaster. That was your start. That was our start. And he wrote a bunch of a series of so-called cookbooks. They taught you see the pants electronics. And from that, we figured out how to build a modem. And it ran at 300 bits per second, which is the equivalent of 30 characters per second in our alphabetic mm. alphabet. And so the industry shifted to go to 1,200 bits per second in the early 80s. And we were good at math, but we couldn't figure out how to do the electronics for a 1,200 bit per second modem. And so our Intel salesman, who we were in this terrible building and everybody thought we were nuts in the first place, but we worked hard and we were creative. And so he came by with a chip that Intel had come out with it was a signal processor, meaning that rather than sort of a general purpose microprocessor that does many things, the signal processor does a few things extremely fast. And we looked at that and something that should obviously have been conceived by any of a hundred other companies, mm -hmm. but they didn't. And thinking creatively about this, we thought, well, if we used an analog to digital converter and converted the energy coming off of a phone line 
into a digital bitstream of zeros and ones at the rate of 64,000 of them per second, it was conceivable that we could do all the work of a modem computationally in this chip. And it worked. We did that. And wow. it, transformed, it transformed the industry. Pretty much all products were made like that from then on out. But the key is you, you did not do this inch by inch. You tore it all apart and started over with a much bigger vision. That's exactly right. It was totally transformational. And when we brought the product out, the competitor's products were typically three six-inch by nine-inch circuit boards, three of them stacked one on top of the other inside a metal case with a fan on the back. And ours was about the size of one and a half credit cards. Wow. And lower cost, more horsepower. And we used that strategy then to build out an entire product line. And we went from being lowly, lowly, barely alive to the uh, the largest maker of telephone line communications products, data products uh, globally. The key there seems to be a couple things. One, you had the right people. They're enthusiastic. They're team first. We'll get back to that in a second. But also, as you said, you cannot inch your way out there. My line in the book is you can't, as far as culture goes, you're not going to get there going inch by inch through the shallow end. If the water's too cold, no one's going to do it. you got to dive off the three-meter board into the deep end right away and start swimming, basically. And that's what you did. Yep. Business, like life, is a contact sport. And you've got to get out there and engage. When you make a mistake or you go wrong, get up, dust yourself off, get back on the ice. That's just how it is. You know, we had a hockey coach who um, early on, we were terrible the first year I played. And uh, he was totally frustrated. And he said, look, if you don't know what to do, get out on the ice. And if you don't know what to do, hit somebody. You know, your own guys. <laughs> you know, just do something, you know, but, uh, but get in the game. One thing I'll tell you, John, is... On the subject of culture and building and maintaining a team and vision is in 1990, we did about $50 million in revenue. That's right. And we had the opportunity to get much bigger. The Internet had been around for a while, but the World Wide Web, which is what's really driven the Internet to be used by billions of people, was launched in 1991. And at the end of 1991, there were perhaps 15,000 users of the World Wide Web. And up until then, computers were used for communications, but mostly it was computer terminals, that sort of thing. So, you know, internet connectivity was really starting to take off. So we did 50 million, and we could see that there was this opportunity before us, and we thought we could raise the capital, but we had to figure out how do we empower our team to really recognize this opportunity and go for it long term. And the real issue was that, you know, it took perhaps from the time you wanted to hire somebody, six to nine months before you found them, hired them, and moved them to one of our facilities. And then it was another six to 12 months before they were productive, you know, because they have to learn the ropes, right. et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you're looking at 20 months, you know, a year and a half or so before you've really got somebody who's a seasoned veteran on the team. And we were trying to drive this point home with our managers so that they would start to think further into the future about who they had to hire, what positions they would have to fill, et cetera, et cetera. And so to get this point home, we did two things. First, we worked with teams of people inside the company. We did this ourselves with no consultants, and we fashioned a mission statement that we thought was big. 
And it was, uh, U.S. Robotics will be the best data communications company providing quality product, services, systems, and support to meet the needs and expand the capabilities of business and professional customers worldwide. And you still remember that? Oh, yeah. And so I had a, we were in this old warehouse, 100,000 square feet with partitions all over the place, et cetera, and manufacturing right next to sales on the floor. And so oftentimes at the end of the day, I would, uh, I had this old bicycle with a huge basket on the front for like a newspaper basket, you know, to carry a bunch of 100 papers. So I would fill that up with beer, <laughs> cans of beer, and I would ride around seeing how everybody's doing and stop here and there. And uh, anyone who, I would challenge people and, and hand out a beer here and there if somebody wanted it. And I carried a couple of few hundred dollars and hundred dollar bills in my pocket. And I would ask anyone if they could recite the mission statement. And if they could stand up in front of everyone and recite it accurately, I would give them a hundred dollars on the spot and we'd all have a beer. And everybody in the company, everybody in the company knew that mission statement. I love that. One of my lines in the book is, if every one of your people cannot recite your mission statement, you don't have one. It's just a business card. It means nothing. You drew it up on a whiteboard. Everyone felt good about it. Pat yourself on the back. And it means nothing. The whole point of the mission statement, the whole point of a, a set of values or principles is that they got to be in everybody's bones or they don't exist. In our case, it was very simple. Work hard, support your teammates. That's all we had for here on hockey. In your case, kick ass and sell modems. I like that one too, of course. But I love that you reinforced the mission statement so it actually mattered. On that note, Casey, we're going to take a brief break here. Uh, midpoint of Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'll be right back with my good buddy, Casey Powell, to talk about U.S. Robotics, how it became a gigantic $2.5 billion company in just seven years, from $50 million in 1990. And we'll talk about the Palm Pilot and, of course, the imperative to give back. So we'll be right back here on Let Them Lead. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is John Bacon on Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. My guest, as you know, is Casey Cowell, the founder, co-founder of U.S. Robotics, the world's biggest maker of modems for many years. Grew it from $50 million in 1990 to $2.5 billion in 1997. Now, along the way, we talked about your emphasis on team, 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 a la Bo Schembechler, of course, and you put self-confidence high on the list. Now, I really want to emphasize exactly what you mean here, because in these days, cockiness is all the rage. Narcissism, self-aggrandizement, these things are running rampant, I think, in corporate America, as opposed to genuine self-confidence. That's the stuff that gives you thick skin. You can take criticism. You can share credit. You can take blame. And you want others to succeed. Real self-confidence, that's what that looks like, not the blustery guy in the board meeting, correct? That's right. And I think there's... Uh... <laughs> The X and Y axis are uh, self-confidence is X and uh, teamwork, team play is Y. And you want to be in the far northeast quadrant. You want people who are self-confident, but they also thrive in a team environment. When you hired people, by the way, how did you hire them? You said that the enthusiasm brought a lot of folks in, but it sounds to me, if I'm reading you correctly, that you did what I'm urging, which is don't be snowed by the resume or the pedigree, the educational background, and so on. Try the guy out. Get to know the person, man or woman, of course. Check the references, and if you can, try them out. Don't be fooled by the paper stuff, because in a year or two, like you said, it takes 20 months for somebody to become profitable. 
at your company. By that time, you know who they are, and it might be too late. And as you also said, which I also loved, if someone is not fitting, either they need to change or they need to go. You cannot allow cancers to grow in your company. You have to protect your team. You have to protect the culture. And, you, you know, you can tell. <laughs> and your good managers, if they all pull together and you're talking this all the time, it, informal get-togethers, structured meetings, what have you, they get it. And they're the feet on the street in the local terrain who are telling you if the soldiers you've got are working together or not. And uh, you have to pay attention to that. You are the keeper of the faith. That's your number one role. And you've got to inspire people. One one thing I'll throw out here, John, in, in the spirit of what we were talking about, is when we saw the opportunity to get bigger, while we ended up with a complicated mission statement that everybody knew, and we drafted it with no consultants, we did it in groups of team meetings, and it said exactly what we were about. But we also recognized that we had this opportunity to grow, and we had to convey to our people the scope, the potential of what was in front of us. And so we ended up with a really simple mantra, which was five by five. This was in 1990. And what it said was we would hit, although we were doing $50 million a year in 1990, we would hit $500 million a year in revenue by 1995. And everybody knew that, and they knew exactly what five by five meant. And it made them think about where we were going to have to be in two years and three years. And it, that affected every meeting, all the thinking we had, all the planning. And, you know, we didn't hit $500 million a year in revenue in 1995. We hit it in 1994. <laughs> we did $900 million a year in 1995. $1.9 billion a year in 1996. And that's a lot of modems. That's a lot of modems. Back to uh, kick ass and sell modems. But five by five, again, this is part of the culture. But a key part, again, I stress, is that it wasn't some boardroom, blah, 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 some consulting group and so on. It was in the bones of everybody who worked there. So this is not, uh, as I say, let them lead. Great line from John Cooper, one of my heroes. He and I coached against each other briefly when he's at Lansing Catholic Central. He's now the Tampa Bay Lightning and head coach, of course, and got a couple of Stanley Cups and might get a third one this year in a row. Yep. Great line. Bad teams, nobody leads. Good teams, coaches lead. Great teams, everybody leads. Yep. And you've got kick-ass and sell modems, and you've got five-by-five five when everyone on command can recite you know, the fairly wordy mission statement for 100 bucks and a beer. Everyone is now leading, basically. Well, we were up against a lot of champagne and caviar companies. <laughs> we were really beer and pizza. And, uh, <laughs> and we, in simple messages, reinforced consistently, build and maintain the culture. And uh, uh, I, I also believe that, uh, in our case anyway, I think it's true that really the real strength of the business and where the game really got played was with our middle to upper middle managers. And really, everybody in the business was working for them because they were really close to the field, but mm -hmm. also engaged in the strategy. And they had to participate in the strategy. They had to, in the, all of this growth, had to take that and turn that into a game plan in the field. And they had to do this on the fly. And as we said before, when in doubt, act. If you make a mistake, we'll clean it up. But you're going to get 10 things right for every one thing you get wrong. So do it and go forward. They were also deputized to do that, though. The game is played forward, not backward. Go forward. I like that. And you, you, of course, empowered them to do so. They knew that they could shoot a few bullets, miss a couple targets, and not get fired. Sure. We got, made a lot of mistakes. You know, If you're not making mistakes, you're not trying. You're not learning. So, Well, how about this, Casey? If you save all the shots, you're playing in a pretty crappy league. 
So that's, that's uh, right. you need to up that game. Uh, Palm Pilot. Tell us about the Palm Pilot. It predates, of course, the iPhone. It really was the first handheld device that we all relied on. An immensely popular product that U.S. Robotics, and I was certainly an owner, created, geez, about 20 years ago or so, and yep. a huge success. Tell us the story about the Palm Pilot. We were the largest player in the dial-up modem market, which is to say connecting com- interconnecting computer equipment over the public switch telephone network. Cisco was the largest player in the backbone market, which is to say interconnecting big cities and locations to each other. And Cisco wanted to move out to the edge of the network, and we wanted to contain them from doing that. We were looking for ever more products that would work at the outer edge of the network, in your pocket, at your house, at your home, just like a modem did, that would work with our products when it was on both ends of the call, our technology. And so in looking for that, we ran across Palm, which had been a uh, product conceived and built, designed by a guy named Jeff Hawkins, who was absolutely brilliant. And so they had done the first round of venture capital funding and got the Palm pilot to a prototype stage, more or less. And in the meantime, Steve Jobs had been forced out of Apple, and Apple had been developing the Newton, which was a larger but similar product for communications of all kinds and keeping track of email to some degree, names and addresses, et cetera, et cetera. And with Jobs out, when the Newton was introduced, it was a disaster. And it essentially killed the venture capital community's interest in products like that. Hmm. Hawkins and Palm couldn't get financed. And so we approached them and said, we won't invest, but why don't you join our team? Because we have the world's largest manufacturing. We have the best engineering. We can finish the product and we can build the product and we have the biggest distribution. We can sell it. You can run as an independent company largely, but we'll get all this done. And they agreed to do that, which was, it was pretty bizarre because here we were based in Chicago and we acquired this product, which nobody wanted us to do. It was went off like a rocket ship. It was unbelievable how how fast that thing. There were there were magazines about it. There were clubs. It was crazy. So it was a huge huge success. It broadened our product line. It defended our turf and extended it so that it was really impenetrable. No one was coming out into our turf. We were uh, Gordy Howe going into the corners <laughs> of Olympia Stadium. You know. no, no one's going in after you at that point. You got it. So tell me a story. When did you know that Palm Pilot had become a ridiculous hit? Well, John Zakin, our head of strategy and marketing, uh, is the one who came across it. And I was a fanatical user of this sort of thing. And the original handheld devices like this were from Casio, the Boss, and Hewlett Packard, the HP 95LX and the 100LX. And the marketing vision of the computer industry at that time was when they made those products, as the first such products, they were mini computers and a little handheld device. You flip the cover open a clamshell, there's a tiny little chiclets keyboard, as they called it, (laughs) and they basically shrunk a computer down to pocket size. And they were terrible, but I used them all the time. And in fact, when I would travel... I would carry adhesive back Velcro. When I got a rental car, I would Velcro the uh, my HP 100LX onto the steering wheel of my car so I could be looking at it while I was driving. And I was always people used to tease me. I'm going to be in an accident sometime, and the airbag's going to go off, and I'm going to have a chiclet keyboard embedded in my forehead. 
For the record, listeners, we are not encouraging this behavior. Just for the do record. not. <laughs> so do not. Right. The pilot, you know, I had a good knack always for what would work and just the subtleties of what would make a product good. And I was always generally pretty good at that. When I saw the Palm Pilot in its prototype stage, which was, you know, a cardboard box of wires with a screen to kind of mm. show how the thing would work, it was obvious. This is going to be an absolute Grand Slam winner. And it used the graffiti language, which was, I think, a college project of Jeff Hawkins. And you thought it was going to be really difficult to draw out this crazy alphabet that he conceived. You could learn it in like two minutes. It was a snap. And the thing I like about products, when you see a real beauty, it's elegant, you know, from start hmm. to finish. It just is elegant. It's everything that you want and everything that you need, but it isn't loaded up with a bunch of stuff that you don't want that always gets in the way of you doing something. And, you know, as they say, the uh, the first rule of senior management is in the spirit that it's the middle level that's really getting things done. First rule of senior management is never stand in the way of somebody who's actually doing something. And the, <laughs> Get the, out of the um, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about the Palm Pilot and a really elegant product is that it doesn't have a bunch of stuff that does nothing. If you just use it for what it is, and get a feel for it and appreciate it, it'll have all the stuff that you want and it'll really make you more productive rather than just a novelty, which ends up in the drawer someplace never used. So it was a beautiful product from conception to execution. Yeah. Well, that reminds me of Buckminster Fuller who created the geodesic dome amongst other great inventions. He had a great line. He said, I know it's not finished yet until it's beautiful. In other words, yeah. it can't just be practical. Okay, this solves this problem, this solves that problem. As you say, when it becomes elegant, that now you're onto something, and it gives you what you want, and the things you none of the things you don't want. And I love that too. So I want to get back to another concept here. You mentioned the team, the team, the team. Jack Welch, of course, wrote uh, from the gut, big hit, naturally, blockbuster bestseller. Former CEO of GE, he's one of the guys who brought in what I think is an incredibly odious, egregious, toxic principle of the rank and yank, where within a company within a division, you rank everybody, you know, five through one and five stay and ones go. And I know that other companies, Microsoft included, has have adopted this, I think, very counterproductively, to say the least. I'm guessing from your notion of teamwork and how unified your, you know, smaller teams were and so on, as well as the bigger team, I'm guessing you guys did not do this at U.S. Robotics. You know, we didn't. And the there are exceptions to the rule here and there. But to me, that's an approach that's largely based on fear. And you can't lead out of fear. If you've got huge momentum and you're a giant institution of some kind, your market position will carry you forward. But it tends to be really incremental growth, as we talked about before. It's generally not the case. When you're trying to be number one in your area of business and the competition is fairly lackluster, then you don't have to necessarily be superb in creativity to be ahead of them. You have to execute better, so on and so forth. But it's much more fun and rewarding to swing for the fences. You have to put a team together and it's really looking far forward. And that's you can coalesce a team around that and let them go and they execute and they win and it's fun. It's got to be fun and inspiring. And you know when you're going into a room and everybody's carrying around a, a big briefcase full of files and listening to presentations about how, you know, they're going to 
build better refrigerators than the other guys and be number one in that area. It's it could be a, a money maker, but it's not to me. You know that's not inspiring and it's not fun. And uh, it's way more fun to to get inspired, have a vision, build a team, turn them loose, make it happen. That is a perfect segue for getting near the close here, and that is uh, why you left U.S. Robotics. After a while, you said it quit being fun. It, we got too big, and uh, we had close to 6,000 employees and several million square feet of uh, manufacturing space. Uh, we Amazingly, we built all of our products ourselves at our own factories. In the U.S., in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah, in the U.S. And uh, the reason why was it turns out that as I mentioned before, you know, we designed our own architecture based on off-the-shelf parts. It was all in the programming. Whereas our competitors tended to build by the rather by the engine or the core part of a modem from other manufacturers, we built our own using off-the-shelf parts. And I believe that the more of the product percentage-wise, the more that you design yourself the more leverage you can get out of building it yourself. Hmm. So it was a natural advantage for us to manufacture our own products because since we controlled the design completely, we could modify it, we can upgrade it, we could change it for certain customers however they wanted it. But it gave us, we had, having the flexibility of making it ourselves gave us an edge and we got good at it. So we kept our costs down. With respect to getting what happened at the end, it just, when we had so many people, it just wasn't as fun anymore. Not for me and not for a lot of our team that had been around for quite a while. And the uh, overly simple way to think about this is that at a certain point, you end up with vice presidents of sales or whatever area you might pick. And in sitting in their offices across from each other in the, in the hallway, down one of our hallways, you kind of started to get the feeling that they were more interested in beating their counterpart across the hall than they weren't beating the competition out in the marketplace. Hmm. I used to do everything myself, soldered parts on, you name it. Wow. Um, and in the early, early days, and uh, eventually got to the point where I didn't do anything directly myself. In fact, I didn't really even get to go to meetings. I used to do <laughs> real meetings. I had to go to meetings in which we figured out what meetings we should have. And I mean, <laughs> it just wasn't fun anymore. So um, that's when we kind of said, maybe there's a different way. Now, since then, I got uh, reinvigorated in Traverse City to reach the conclusion that while there were a lot of cool companies in Traverse City, Michigan, northwest corner of the Lower Peninsula, there were a lot of cool companies that made a lot of money and hence had a lot of resources that could be invested in the community. The business community didn't really seem to sort of hang together with a common community of interest in which they fashioned their points of view and had impact on the community and created more opportunity. So, and to me, the engine, the business community that creates high paying jobs, that's the real engine that powers the, uh, the community forward. Now, Traverse City, I think the region may have more per capita more 501c3 organizations than nonprofits than any place else in the country, which is, wow. I think it's more than a thousand in the tri-county area, something like that. But in any event, that's fine. But the thing that the engine that really powers the community forward, in my mind, is private enterprise. And when you have that at high paying jobs, you know, 30 year olds with three kids don't go to Scottsdale, Arizona for the wintertime. They stay in the community <laughs> year round. They, and the, to the extent that they're well-paid, they invest in the community, they invest in the school system, they own homes, they put their money in the bank, they spend it locally, and they're the ones for the long term 
the succession of, of generations like that is what will keep the Traverse City culture and team together and growing culturally and profitably. So we set about to, to kind of have some impact on that. We started uh, Boomerang Catapult. Boomerang is, of course, someone who grew up in Traverse City or lived there for a while, went out into the world, got really good at doing something, and would move back if they could find work. And so we reached out, and it's kind of social investing a little bit, but we reached out, looked for people who wanted to start a company in the Traverse City area, and we would bring them back, or they were already moved back there themselves or were already there, and began to invest in them. And so in the last four or so years, we've done, I think, 21 startups, invested about $10 million of our own money, but in total, counting that, we have uh, raised and invested about $140 million. And uh, in a place like Traverse City, that's big. And not all of that's been invested in Traverse City because these companies obviously eventually start to have outposts or facilities or groups in other areas, but the bulk of it is. And it's having uh, a lot of impact and it's helped to raise awareness throughout this land of 501c3s. I think it's raised awareness of the importance of private enterprise and the impact that it has. And so now I think that community, our business community, has a, a more prominent voice in the envisioning forward of what our community, city, county, et cetera, is, and state is going to be like. Well, I can prove that, Casey, because it was about two years ago, I think, that uh, you and I were talking right there on Front Street on the sidewalk after a meeting with President Nelson, the former president of Northern Michigan College, a great school right there in Traverse City. Traverse City is becoming a nationally acclaimed resort town. Uh, 17 daily flights from outstate, from Dallas, from Phoenix, from Denver, you name it, in the summertime. And yet your point to me was very well taken, I think, and that is that uh, we have to be more than a resort town. We know all those resort towns, and with COVID alone, that basically crushes them. You've got so many smart, capable people in Traverse City, so many great businesses, so many great organizations. They'd be ashamed not to marshal these resources to something bigger. So you and I are now on one of your many side projects, and that is uh, having Michigan Tech University up there in Houghton, Michigan, in the UP, Upper Peninsula, where I am a trustee, getting a foothold there in Traverse City, much to the delight of Northern Michigan College, I believe, and Traverse City folks as well. So that's how you and I have become friends in this process, one of your many tentacles in the organization, but it's not enough to be a resort town. You have to marshal these things, but as you said, it's got to be organized. Otherwise, it doesn't really work very well. Well, that's right. And I think the thing about the um, the tourist, tourism industry is a lot of it is seasonal. And so that can wreak havoc with housing, with the labor market, because demand goes way up in the summer and then it, it slackens sometimes. And that can upend the ability to just run a steady state business year round. And so to the extent that we can create those businesses and get high paying jobs so that we can compete in the high seasonal times, creative young people making good money and raising their families in the community year round is, I think, the uh, engine that protects our culture and leads to prosperity for the long term. Whoa. So uh, that's what we're about. And we're doing it. It's fun to see. It's fun to work with you on that, of course. To those ends, we're going to close up, as I always do, with uh, asking who, Casey, was your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher was, unfortunately now deceased, Sherwin Rosen, who was a, uh, an economist at the University of Rochester and uh, the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he was super smart. He, his demeanor, he was kind of like Gordy Howe. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He knew it all, and he hung back, and he was quiet. And when he spoke, 
you paid attention. He analyzed things and he really knew what he was talking about. And he just had this knack for asking questions and providing just enough information to get you inspired and want to dig in. And then he wouldn't give you the whole answer. When you got off track, he'd let you go a little bit and then he'd kind of steer you back on track. And uh, it's a heck of a way to uh, work with people. So very, very formative for me. I love that. Let me guess. He was not easy. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> a good no chuckle way. at that one, right? There you go. No, no way. I've asked no. that question from Vancouver to Santiago to Sao Paulo. Never once is the answer the guy was easy, uh, but also he clearly cared about you and he clearly engaged you. He, he was enjoying what he was doing. Yep. You know, it's funny. I, I studied to get a PhD in economics and I left to start uh, the business. And uh, a good friend of mine who'd done well in, in business and I'd worked for growing up, when he heard I was going to go off to get a PhD in economics, he said, uh, you know, that's great. But when you get it, you're going to end up as the only guy in the unemployment line who knows exactly why he's there. <laughs> <laughs> and can explain it in great detail. That's exactly. very important. <laughs> yeah. uh, by the way, I, I hope this the answer here is yes, but I've got no idea. Did Gordy Howe ever learn what a great success you had become? He did. Yeah. He, um, we built a big house in uh, Traverse City when I was working a lot. And we moved, uh, my uh, ex-wife and I, when our kids were two, four, and six, we moved to Elk Rapids, which is just north of Traverse City, in 1991, the year that robotics went public. We wanted to raise our family in a smaller town. And I commuted back and forth to Chicago or wherever I had to go. And eventually, I moved to uh, Traverse City in 1997. I still entertained a lot, etc. And we built a large house on uh, Grand Traverse Bay and uh, on Old Mission Peninsula, just uh, outside the city. And Gordy lived about a, a mile up the road. And uh, he would come by the house uh, from time to time and, and with, you know, with his kids sometimes. And uh, he definitely saw what was going on. And uh, he, I think he took pride in that because he would say, uh, he'd ask, say, when are you getting back in the nets? <laughs> and you know what? When he came by at that time, he was my idol, and uh, I was totally mesmerized by him then, just as I was when I was nine years old. How cool is that? What a great story. So I'm going to close with my usual three takeaways. Uh, once again, Casey, in your case, very difficult to do this. I've got, got about 10 here I can pull off, but I'll try me on this. Here we go. Number one, the team, the team, the team. A team of dedicated Team-spirited B players will beat all-star teams every time. I love that. And you hired accordingly, of course. Number two, if you can't be good, be enthusiastic. And I'll stretch that out with your thinking that uh, enthusiasm attracts good people to you. That's your recruiting tool right there. You don't lead out of fear. You lead out of enthusiasm and inspiration. And that goes a long way. And three, when in doubt, act. I'm paraphrasing your line here, but you can't inch your way to a revolution and never stand in the way of anybody doing good work. So I love that, Casey. Great stuff. Great conversation. And whether you're into computers or not, you can learn an awful lot about how teams work well from U.S. Robotics and Casey Cowell's experience. Casey, cannot thank you enough. What a fun conversation. Thanks so much, John. It was a blast. You've been listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today with your host, John U. Bacon, author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team. We hope you enjoyed this episode, got a few laughs, and picked up some insights you can use tomorrow and think about for years. Please feel free to leave your comments about any and all of the podcast episodes, and by all means, spread the word. 
please join us again for another fun, fast, and fulfilling serving of Let Them Lead. <music>